Burning Zozo Written by Kristen Knight Narrated by Nancy Peterson As the door clicked shut, Andy exhaled, long and slow. Pulling out her second-hand iPod, she started the audiobook, Winning Your Case, The Art of Persuading a Jury, and pressed play. If she was going to spend her days as a maid, she was at least going to make the time useful. The narrator asked a question, and Andy responded, Objection, Your Honor, hearsay. Andy chose a box and flung open the lid. The smell of old paper filled her nose. She inhaled deeply, enjoying the delicious scent, then scooped up an armful of books and climbed the nearby ladder. She sprayed and wiped the shelf exactly as instructed, tenderly rubbing each book with a yellow cloth and placing it exactly one inch from the edge. A pair of eyes peered through a crack in the door behind her, examining the way she climbed the ladder, nimble and one-handed, the way she cradled the books like she would a newborn, the way she pushed out courtroom phrases with just a little desperation. No further questions, she shouted. Then, move to strike. The watcher opened the door wider. It creaked. Andy froze at the sound and turned off her iPod. The watcher held his breath. She stood listening for several seconds, scalp prickling, then slowly turned. The half-black, half-white Apache mask with a feather headdress was crooked on the wall, twenty degrees off-center. Just the house settling, she said aloud to comfort herself. New houses settle. Tiptoeing, she cautiously descended the ladder. Reaching up, she straightened the mask, her fingers lingering on the cheek. What had seemed to be wood from a distance now felt like something softer. Microfiber? Or leather? She looked closer. A neat set of eyelashes curled from the closed eyelids. They were too perfect. And she realized... They were real eyelashes on real lids. She yanked her hand back, shuddered, and scurried back to the ladder. Once safely at the top, she turned her iPod up loud enough to drown out the sound of her own heart babooming in her chest. For the next few hours, she worked carefully, laser-focused on each book and its place next to its neighbor, anything but the dead eyes behind her. After shelving the fortieth volume of the same story, she returned to the box and looked inside. They were all the same. Dozens and dozens. Some had different covers or artwork or publishers, but the story was identical. Three hours later, when Andy stepped back to admire her clean-filled shelves, she shook her head wondering what kind of man would want 952 copies of The Picture of Dorian Gray. 2.2. Conviction Rand sat at the kitchen island, kissing a scotch, rocks. Chen strolled in, holding a clipboard. A little early for whiskey, my friend, 
I'm not your friend, and I need it, Rand said. Chen pulled a glass from the cupboard and filled it with water. You'll be fine, Mr. Taylor. Rand filled his glass again with amber liquid. I thought I could do this, but now... I don't know. Chen took a sip. There's nothing to worry about. Adams will protect you. Feels too easy somehow, the driver said. Don't trust it. Parts of being in business with him are easy, Chen said. He has influence on a level no one else has or ever will have. Other parts are more difficult, but that's how most high-reward contracts are. And when you love someone like you do your family, then all of it is worth it. You know that. Rand looked at his glass. I know I can't go back to who and where I was before. If I'm found out and sent back, it'll be over for me. Then don't spend your energy thinking about going back. Spend it on the future, your family's future, your freedom. Chen patted Rand on the back. Or think about the fact you'll be helping maintain the natural order of things, keeping life in balance. You could help save so many others. Be a lifesaver, a hero. When was the last time you felt like a hero? Rand tipped back the rest of his drink and set the glass on the counter. The future. Your future, filled with peace and prosperity, probably for the first time in your life. Rand rubbed the tattoo on his arm and said, and one man can guarantee that? One man has that kind of power? Chen nodded. He does. Rand stood and put his glass in the sink, careful to avoid meeting Chen's gaze. In a few weeks, it will all be over, Rand. Just stay focused, Chen said. Rand looked at his shoes. Can you do that? Chen asked. Rand didn't answer. He just turned and disappeared into the quiet hallway. Chen pulled out his cell and dialed. A voice on the other end said, Yes? It's me, he said. You might want to cut your trip short. We may have a problem. 2.3. Busted. By noon, Andy's stomach was growling, so she ventured out to find the kitchen. The house was so quiet, even the squeak of her sneakers seemed too loud. She tiptoed down the hall, turning the corner where she thought the kitchen would be, and instead found herself at the dojo. The room was warm with bamboo floors, floor-to-ceiling windows, and a rich royal blue wall covered in thousands of metal stars. Swirling in Milky Way patterns, the stars overlapped in waves and curves. As she moved into the room, light from the windows danced across them. Some were complex like snowflakes, others simple, with gently curved tips and freckles of rust. Each was engraved with three characters, two Chinese and a third shaped like a bent stalk of wheat. Thanks to her father's obsession with old movies, 
and James Bond, You Only Live Twice, 1967. And he eventually recognized what they were, Chinese throwing stars, thousands of them. Reaching up, she touched one. Be careful, a voice said behind her. Those are real. She jumped, then spun to find Chen standing in the doorway. I'm sorry, Andy said. I was looking for the kitchen and saw this beautiful wall and wasn't sure what the stars were made of, so I... Uh... She spewed excuses as she darted from the room. Chen glared at her, then said, I've brought you a walkie-talkie phone. He held out a yellow cell phone with a rubber antenna. I'd like you to wear it at all times that you're on the property. Okay. Andy pressed the button. The phone whispered static. And Miss Scoggin, he moved closer. I don't want to catch you in rooms that aren't on your task list again. Ever. Finally, close enough, Andy saw the carving on his ear cuff, a tiny dragon snarling and clawing the air. Chen's jaw tightened beneath it. I'm not joking. Not in this house. I'm sorry, Mr. Chen. She made her third apology of the day. Will he fire me at four? She wondered. I don't have time to keep track of you, so if I catch you wandering again, you're gone. No second chances. Right, she nodded. Got it. Okay, he said, and checked his watch. Come on, I'll help you find the kitchen. After her lunch of a single-sliced turkey sandwich and a handful of Fruit Loops, Andy went back to work in the library. Between boxes, she'd jot down ideas of how to help her father find a new job— without getting him deported. Between shelves, she'd give a sideways peek at the Apache mask. Each time she did, he hung straight and proud on the wall behind her. She'd shiver and remember his fleshy feel beneath her touch. Hours later, as she placed the last book on shelf D12, her walkie buzzed. It's five o'clock, Andy, Chen said through the phone. I'll come see you out. She gathered the armful of rags and spray bottles. Chen ran his finger along a shelf, inspecting. Hmm, he adjusted a book. You've done an acceptable job with this task. Andy smiled as Chen told her to bag up the dirty rags and leave them by vendor entrance one for laundry service. Being in a house that had so many entrances they had to be named and numbered would take some getting used to. Please be here tomorrow at 8 a.m. sharp. Remember, you're still on probation, and Mr. Adams doesn't tolerate lateness. Yes, Your Honor. Chen's eyebrows raised. Excuse me? Oh, I'm so sorry. I mean, sir. I was practicing courtroom phrases earlier, and it just slipped out. Apology number four. Chen looked at her blankly and said, Time to go. Andy picked up her supplies and followed him through the door. She didn't look back to check the mask. A stretch limo pulled into the drive just as Andy was rolling her bike from the garage. Ducking behind a car, Andy waited, hoping to finally get a glimpse of the mysterious Mr. Adams. 
a tween with a familiar pink hair streak emerged instead. A poster of her face and streak hung over Steffi's bed. Two bodyguards and the tween's mother stepped from the car as well. Chen greeted them at the door like old friends. Jillian Morris buys antiques? Bizarre, Andy said, then mounted her bike. Pedaling down Los Campanas Drive, burnt air from the wildfire dirtied her throat. The further she traveled, the more Andy shifted back into her sweat-stained, overcrowded, mismatched reality. For a few hours, Adams's house had transported her to a world where floors glimmered like movie screens and weapons hung in galaxies of gold. His world was unlike anything she'd ever known, a cool, strange, ordered, spacious dream. And she liked it. 2.4. Curse. Shane was outside the double-wide, pacing and talking on his cell in Spanish. He didn't notice his daughter as she parked her bike and bounded up the stairs. Liz stood in the kitchen at an open cupboard, hands on hips. Jenna sat at the kitchen table sketching a still life of spilled honey nut Cheerios. A white linen envelope with Andy's name scrawled in blue ink lay on the counter. She lunged for it. What time did Chris come by? What did he say? She flipped it over. The seal was broken. Hey, did you... Andy glared at her sister. Jenna shook her hair and pointed a charcoal pencil at her mother. It's an invitation to a party, Liz said, examining the back of a can. Not sure what you'd wear, though. It's dress-up. And in the wrong neighborhood. She meant the rich neighborhood. To everyone else, the Scoggins were the ones living in the wrong neighborhood. I'm going, Mom. No matter what you say. Most mothers would have been thrilled to have their daughters spend time with a future priest. But not Andy's. You see, when Liz was 18, a visiting priest came to Santa Fe... He was Spanish, beautiful, tawny-skinned, and kind. Liz worked on his Christmas Bazaar committee, and they became friends. She had a lot of questions about God and the meaning of life then, and when they weren't organizing goods for sale or setting up tables, the priest answered her questions when no one else seemed to want to. They grew close, and she fell hard. Then one night, when they were cleaning the sanctuary, she kissed him. And he kissed her back. The next day he was transferred to Milwaukee. She never saw him again. Six years later, when her first baby died, Liz announced that she'd been cursed. She'd stolen the breath of God with that kiss, and in his anger, he'd taken it back. Every time anything bad happened after that, she would cross herself and ask God to forgive her for that same kiss. Over and over, and over again. Liz impaled a can of refried beans with a can opener. Andy held the card from Chris to her chest and headed to her room. Steph was playing Barbies in the closet. Where was the body when you found it, ma'am? One-legged Ken asked. In the street, officer, Christmas Barbie answered in a slightly mangled Scarlet O'Hara accent. 
And you say that the bugs killed him? Is that right? Yes, they just fell from the sky all at once. He couldn't see and got hit by a bus. It was just horrid, officer, absolutely positively horrid. Andy plopped onto her navy pinstriped comforter. Crossing her legs, she faced the wall below her collage of tennis players. Carefully, she removed the contents of the envelope, surprised at how hard her heart was pounding. A hand-painted image of a Russian god emerged from the envelope with a tiny V. Belikov inked in the corner. She gazed at the eyes, the hair, the jawline. Mrs. Belikov had captured him exactly. Andy would never throw that card away. Ever. Inside it read, You are cordially invited to a birthday celebration for Christoph Belikov, Thursday, July 25th at 7 p.m. at the home of Cecilia Frost. Shiz it, not Cecilia's, Andy said. Hey, Steph looked up. You said the S word. I'm telling Mom. Intensely Catholic Liz didn't allow swearing in the house, not even from her husband. Andy kept her back to her sister and said, Don't hyperventilate, Steph. I didn't say it, okay? Concentrate on your own damn Barbie business. Mom! Steph yelled. Andy reread the card and chewed her thumbnail until it hurt. Cecilia Frost was one of the wealthiest, most beautiful, and dangerous girls in the school. Her mother and Valeria Belikov met at a painting class years ago and became friends. As a result, they'd thrown Chris and Cecilia together, taking them on trips to Hawaii, Telluride, the Caymans. The problem was, Cecilia was a predator. She had this condition that some girls came down with when they learned Chris was going to be a priest. Like a strange hunger, they felt the need to give him experience before he became a man of the cloth. They would fawn over him, flirt with him, try to use him. And Cecilia was the worst. Chris always gave her the benefit of the doubt, but Andy didn't trust her. Once she even got up the nerve to tell him, if you don't wise up, Someday she'll sink in her fangs. And it would break Andy's heart if she did. Especially if Cecilia broke his. Chris would never admit that the birthday party and any gift Cecilia gave him would come with strings attached. Birthday gift. Andy opened her wallet. Five dollars. What can I get that's Chris-worthy for five dollars? Girls. Liz peered through the door. Come to dinner. Your father has some friends coming over later, so you'll need to eat fast. Mom, Andy said the S-word and the D- Stephanie, please don't tell anyone what they talk about. Liz mindlessly stroked the edge of the orange sippy cup in her hand. Okay? Like one of our real family secrets? Steph swung her Barbie by her hair. Okay, Mom. I'm good at family secrets. Better than Andy. Liz glared at Andy. Don't you have something for me, young lady? No? What? Your pay for today. Pay? Andy said. Are you kidding? I don't get paid for two weeks. We can't wait that long, 
Ask your boss tomorrow if you can get an advance. Are you insane? I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to argue with you. We need groceries. Just do it. Liz turned to go, then said over her shoulder, Now come and eat. The tacos won't keep themselves warm. Andy waited until Steph had gone to the kitchen, then pulled the key from its hiding place and opened her dresser drawer. Finding a pen and paper, she started another letter. Dear Chris, I know I love you today because, A, I thought about what I'd do if someone broke your heart and felt actual real violence in my body. I felt it in my mouth and chest like the afterburn from hot coffee. I felt it in my fists. I wanted to hurt the perp, and for probably the first time in my life, I believed that I actually could. Andy! Liz's beer and roby laced voice boomed through the door. Get in here! Now! Andy shoved the letter in the drawer and locked it shut. 2.5. Cornered. What do they expect us to do? Next-door neighbor Anna Lucero said. Her voice was like Minnie Mouse, and the more she talked, the higher it squeaked. No matter which direction I choose, my kids will suffer. What are you going to do? I'm not going to be suckered. I'll tell you that much, Dante grumbled. Shane's friends, Anna Lucero, Dante Cortez, and Sal and Tina Ruiz were gathered at the kitchen table discussing the new state immigration law again. The law gave undocumented workers a new kind of state ID. With it, they received certain legal rights, like the ability to sign contracts, give their kids school lunch, or file restraining orders. But the law was risky because in order to get an ID card, UDOCs had to register, which meant giving the government their address, family affiliations, and a full set of fingerprints. Oh, and UDOC kids couldn't go to school without one. Shane hated the law. He called it the BWF, Big White Flag, because it gave ICE all the proof and information they needed to track down and deport every UDOC across the state. Might as well just say I surrender and wave a white flag, Shane said. Besides, those registrations are never good. It's like the Nazi list during the Holocaust all over again. Liz said, Stop exaggerating, Shane. We can't homeschool our kids. Sal Ruiz sounded tired, his voice smokier than normal. Not with both of us working just to keep food in bellies. I don't know. Maybe we'll just pay some green to say our kids are his. <laughs> you better have a chunk of change for fake birth certificates if you do, Dante said. Sal coughed something up into his sleeve and said, Dina's got a cousin that's a green in California. Maybe we'll send our kids to stay with him. What? That's ludicrous, Liz leaned forward. You're going to send your kids away? That defeats everything we've worked so hard to protect. Everything we've given up our lives for. Everything we've worked for, Liz? Dante clicked his tongue. You're a citizen, and so are your kids. You have no idea what it's like for us. 
As usual, you don't know what the hell you're talking about, Dante, she said fiercely. You have no idea what my life is like. None. Most of the neighbors and all of Shane's friends were Mexican Udocs. Shane was funny and friendly and fluent in Spanish, so he fit in well. But it was harder for the rest of the Scoggin family. They were citizens and spoke no Spanish, so the neighbors kept their distance. And making friends with citizens and greens was risky. The Scoggins never knew who to trust or how much to say. And lying all the time was exhausting. That's enough, Shane said quietly. We've got to think, not argue. Shane's right. Tina's voice was low and smooth as cream. We have to be smart about these. Find a way to work around or through the law. Does anyone know a lawyer or congressman who could help? Anyone? Anna squeaked. Congressmen will turn us in, Sal rasped. Cover their asses. Dante folded his arms. Lawyers only speak Lana, and my wallet is light. Couldn't we do something without saying who we are? Anna said. Like, write letters? You can write letters till you're blind, but it won't change the fact that the government has us by the cojones. Dante gripped the air with his hand and shook it. I think Anna has the right idea, Tina said. Me? Anna chirped. Tina nodded. We need to speak up. Find a way to get the government to listen. The sore kids can go to school without the card. That's all we need. Some kind of demonstration, Shane said. Torch the Capitol building, Dante said calmly. That'll get their attention. Liz banged her sippy cup on the table. Genius as usual, Dante. Add arson to the list of things the cops can nail you for. They'll welcome your kids with open arms after that. Dante grumbled. Shane interrupted. Liz, uh, didn't you say you made onion dip earlier? Liz held still for a few charged seconds, hands flat on the table, staring down three times her size Dante Cortez. Shane touched her hand. Finally, Liz rose and said, Yeah, I did. Anna cleared her throat. My kids need to go to school. Don't they deserve the same chance as everyone else? And I'm a human being. Shouldn't I have human rights like everyone else? Dante popped open another beer bottle. The cap pinged a high C on the warped linoleum floor. Not without a green card, he gulped and said. Right, Shane? Liz slowly turned to face Dante, her fist curling around a ceramic bowl. A tense silence bathed the kitchen, and the group held still, waiting to see what would happen next. Finally, Liz clacked the bowl on the table in front of Dante and said, Dip. Then she dropped a bag of chips behind it. Dante's eyes slivered as Spanish profanity flashed behind them. Shane gently touched his shoulder and said, You're right, mi amigo, but we can't break the law. Too risky. I'm sorry, brother, but I think you're wrong. Dante turned to Shane. We've got to do something to get their attention. 
something big. Nothing will change without it, and our kids will be the ones that suffer. I won't lie down. None of us should. Not this time. Liz shook her head. I'm done with this conversation. Putting Emma to bed. She grabbed her orange cup and headed for the door covered with a rich, round, airbrushed portrait of a geisha, courtesy of Jenna Scoggin. Shane and his friends talked for another two hours and thirteen beers. By the time the lights in the kitchen went out, a comforting rumble echoed in the distance, then a crack. Lavender light flashed through the blinds, and plinking began on the blue metal roof. Shane opened the window an inch, closed his eyes, and breathed in the heavy, sweet air of a thunderstorm, come to wash the city clean.'